And a little survey here, how many of you have already seen or have plans in the next few days uh, to see some fireworks somewhere? You plan to go and see some fireworks somewhere? Raise your, don't be embarrassed yet, raise your hand. All right. Amen. Good. Uh, the cities, churches, stadiums, you know, fam- even families will shoot off uh, fireworks, and it's fun to see that. It's a, a remembrance, of course, uh, of our freedom and all that, uh, that went on, the battles uh, that happened for that. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever or you plan to uh, go to an open field during the middle of the day to see a dark works display where, where um, beams of darkness will penetrate the light during the middle of the day? Anybody? Huh. Of course not. We go see fireworks and it's exciting. We see the fire, you know, the, the light in the sky and it's awesome. But dark works? No, it's, you can't. It, it doesn't happen because light is what penetrates darkness and not the other way around. And as humans, we love light generally. Uh, you think of Stone Mountain and the laser show that's been going on for years and millions of people have gone to see uh, the, the laser show through the years. You think of you know, CarMax, Honda dealership and other dealerships that they light up their, their parking lot so that you can see the cars that they have for sale. Women, you think of good jewelry stores, and uh, you, you think, man, I, I wish my husband would go there more for me. But you think of nice jewelry stores, and they're well lit to be able to show the diamonds and the, the jewelry that are there. Uh, I remember buying, after cutting many, many yards uh, as a teenager and as a young, young adult, in hopes and in prayer that uh, God would allow me to marry Kim, which he did. But after cutting many yards of grass, I had enough money to buy a, an engagement ring, and I'll never forget pulling that engagement ring out in the lights of a gymnasium and just seeing that diamond sparkle and the light, you know, brought all the facets of that, of that diamond out. And I couldn't wait to be able to give that to her and to propose in marriage. And thankfully she said yes and uh, has still said yes many years uh, through that. But we love light. I personally love light. My family knows that uh, one of the first things I do in the morning is I open the blinds. I like to keep my, my blinds pulled all the way up in my office. If I could, I would have more windows in, in my office. I love light. And as humans, God made us that way in a sense. Uh, we're not nocturnal beings by nature. And in fact, if we live in regions like Alaska where there's times of the year where it's dark the majority of the day, we don't normally fare well about that. So in all of these ways, we see really some of the, the importance and some of the, the, uh, the reality of Christ and his statement here in John chapter 8, where he comes and he says, listen, I am the light of the world. We're going to learn this morning, this will be part two parts actually, there's, there's too much really to cover in one message, at least I thought, so we'll cover part of it today and then pick up the, ne- the next part later. But I want you to get some context. John 8 is where we'll mainly be, but in John chapter 7 and verse 2, and you'll see it on the screen, this happens during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it says this in John chapter 7 and verse 2. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So Feast of Booths, or sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles, was meant to help the Jews to remember their time of wandering through the wilderness uh, way back in the Old Testament. And so often, as part of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would make, you know, makeshift uh, tents type, you know, out of leaves and different things to recall that time that God led them through the wilderness. Now, let's pick up in John chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. 
But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, and that's, that's an important detail, I think. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And then later in John chapter 8, verses 20, verse 20, the very first part of that, it says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. So the treasury was located in the court of women in the temple. It was where uh, more people could gather. Um, and during the Feast of Booths or during the Feast of Tabernacles, same, same thing, just different names. But during that time, each of the days at the evening and then all through the night until daylight, uh, they would light four huge candelabras. And I think the next, uh, yeah, so we see two here, but there's two more high up on a pillar. And they would light these every night except on the Sabbath, the first Sabbath and then the Sabbath that ended the feast. But they would light these at each evening. They would go all through the night. Jesus then in this passage comes in the morning Maybe they have just, you know, put those out for the day. It's hard to know exactly when this happened. Maybe it was still becoming light. But nonetheless, this was the context. And as people were here in the treasury, the court of the women, and they saw that, you know, these were being lit each day in a remembrance even of God leading them through the wilderness, the pillar of fire and the cloud by day. In this context, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, in our day, what do we do when it gets dark? Help me out. This isn't, this isn't deep, but what do we do when it gets dark? What, what's our, our natural, whether you're home, office, what do we do when, we, when it gets dark? Whew, is that difficult? It's like, duh. Takes a lot of effort, doesn't it? Is, this, is that what happened back in this day during when Jesus was giving this me- message? It, was it that easy for them just to flick on a light? Absolutely not. So the, the light was a scarcity. Light was very difficult. As it, as it became dark, then they had to light a candelabra or other things to, to have light. It wasn't as easy as we have it today. I've been in places, I've been in other uh, countries on different missions trips where light wasn't as prevalent. And you feel, I mean, you feel the darkness and it kind of seems like it envelops you and you, you long for, man, I can't wait till the sun comes up again. This is this is eerie. This is spooky. I, I, want some, I want some light. And nowadays, it seems like we have light with us all the time as we have our phones. And, uh, you know, real quick, we just, oh, here you go. Here's a flashlight. In our cars, we have lights. We have headlights, you know, on the cars. And in our homes, we can even program the lights that when we're gone, it makes it look like we're home and the lights come on. All of this sometimes dims no pun intended, but sometimes it dims the effect of what Jesus says here and of what they really gathered when Jesus says, listen, I am the light of the world. So the first question I want to answer is, why is Christ's claim to be the light of the world so important? First of all, and this is clear by the, how the Jews react to his claim, it is a claim to be God. He doesn't say, hey, I, I am a light if you follow me, you know, you're going to find some good things in life. I am a light. No, it is a claim to be God. First of all, it links Christ with Yahweh, the great I am of the Old Testament in Exodus 3:14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
And so all through the book of John, we've seen several already uh, that he is the, the eternal present God. I am the bread of life, we saw last week. And now he's saying, I am the light of the world. And he's, he's going back, and the Jews automatically remember and, and understand the context. Wow, Jesus is not just making a statement about himself, like I am David, and I am you know, Michael's father, and Mary's father, or whatever. No, he is linking himself with the Yahweh, the great I am of the Old Testament. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord, the Yahweh, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord, Yahweh, is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He was clearly linking himself with the Yahweh of the Old Testament. As he did this, Christ claimed to be one with his Father. Look in John chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So Christ claimed to be one with his father. This this becomes very clear as as we were uh, passing out some invitations for uh, VBS and uh, for the teen nights uh, a week and a half ago. I I met a lady and we we got a chance to talk at the end of her driveway. And and she said, you know... um, I, I, I've kind of figured out things a little bit differently. You know, I, I believe in, in Jesus in a way, but I, I don't believe that he's God. And I'm like, oh, you know, okay. And so we, we shared some things, but she had come up with her, with her own version of who Jesus is to her. Well, that's not the Jesus that he claimed to be. He says, listen, I'm one with, if you, if you, don't, if you don't know me, then you don't know my father. And if you know me, then you know my father because we're together. Christ claimed to be one with his father, but also, what, what do we see happen? Many of the Jews strongly rejected his claim. And we're going to pick out some of the verses. We don't really have time to read all of the passage, but follow along with me, and you'll see it on the screen. But John 8, 13, the latter part of that verse says, they simply said, your testimony is not true. In other words, they're saying, you're a liar. That is a false claim. John 8, 25, so they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. He's like, I've already mentioned this to you. He's already told them, I'm from above, you're from below, I'm come from my father. You know, you, you don't. John 8, 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Wow. This is how important and drastic this claim of Christ to be the light of the world to to the Jews that didn't believe. They came to the point and said, you have a demon. You're a liar and you're a demon possessed. John 8, 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died and who do you make yourself out to be? And this part of John chapter 8, we actually started the I Am series back on Easter Sunday looking at that part of John chapter 8. Why? Because Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternal present God. I, 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 was, I was there in the past. I'm here in the present. I'm, I'm there in the future. Why? Because there is no past, present, or future with God. He is. I am. And they question him, are you greater than Abraham? He died, but you're claiming not to. John 8, 59, at the end of the chapter, look at their drastic reactions. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What are the consequences then of those who reject Jesus as the great I am, as one with his father? Jesus 
doesn't leave anything to, to imagination. John 8, 40, 24 rather. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So he makes it, listen, I'm making a statement. I am, I'm linking myself to the Yahweh of the Old Testament. I am the light of the world. And unless you believe that I am, you're gonna die in your sins. That's the, that's the result of your rejection of me. John 8, verses 28 and 29. Jesus continues, he says, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, it's a reference to the crucifixion, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, this passage does not mean that universally at the moment of crucifixion that everybody all of a sudden just believed, oh, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Some did do that. Some even said, boy, this man is just. Remember the thief on the cross? He, he understood, I'm here on my own uh, because of my own crimes and things, but this man isn't. And thankfully, he was gloriously saved in those moments. But I think we get a better understanding of this passage in conjunction with Philippians chapter 2 where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit we see that there will come a point for every single human being that will declare that Jesus is the Messiah. Look with me and it's on the screen, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. No exceptions. Doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a religious home. Doesn't matter if you were sincere in following something else. It says every knee should bow. Philippians chapter two in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My plea with you is that if you have not come to this point where you've responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and says, Jesus, I do believe that you are the great I am. I do believe that you are the Savior, and I want you to be my Savior. Understand that at some point, you will confess that. But will it be too late? God has given you an opportunity now to hear the gospel. God has given you an opportunity now to open the word of Scripture and be able to see Jesus Christ reveal himself as, I am the Yahweh. God of the Old Testament, I am. The light of the Old Testament, I am. And I plead with you, accept Christ now. Now, some of the Jews did do that. Some of the Jews believed this claim. We see this in John chapter 8, 30 through 32. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And then I love this part. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In Portuguese, uh, this, it's translated as, you'll know the truth, and the truth will liberate you. You'll have liberty and as we were starting a church, our last church plant in the city of Itupeva, and one of the new converts that you've heard us talk about often, and we prayed for him when he was sick, and, they, and now that he's in heaven uh, with Christ, we still pray for his wife and kids. But Wilson, as we asked, you know, what are, some, what are some maybe good names for this church? We've been doing a Bible study, but God's leading us to form a church out of this, out of this group. What are some good names? And he said, Pastor, he said, I think in John chapter 8, where it talks about it, it liberates us and it gives us liberty. I think we should call our church, you know, something about liberty. And that's exactly what we did. 
to be reminded of there are those who believe and God does draw those to himself and in, in faith we should respond as humans to the Holy Spirit's conviction in our hearts. And thankfully, some did. This was not a, this wasn't a convenient environment for them to believe. They're with other Jews who were, were adamantly rejecting Jesus and saying, you're a liar, you have a demon, you're a Samaritan, you're a mixed breed, what are you talking about that you're one with your, are you greater than Abraham? You're not even 50 years old, how can you say that, you know, if, if you, you can give life to people? But yet in this very hostile environment, some Jews believed. That's an encouragement to me. As we live in an ever-increasing hostile environment to the gospel, even right here in metro Atlanta, where you don't have to drive very far to see a church that preaches the Bible, unfortunately, but as a culture, as a city, and even as a nation, we are far from the, the, from the truths of the Bible that is taught in many of those church buildings. And unfortunately, many of us, as the church, we kind of segregate you know, in our minds, okay, we're going to go to church, we do our thing, and then Monday through Saturday, well, I don't really think a whole lot about this and live this out much anymore. That's not the purpose that God has called us to so as we live for him and as we declare that, yes, Jesus Christ is the light of the world, know that he is working in the hearts of men and women. Some will still believe. Thankfully, in the short life of our church, we've seen students and adults and kids who didn't know Christ, but as they were confronted with the truths of the gospel, uh, they responded to that in faith and we've seen them accept Jesus Christ, their personal Savior, and follow the Lord in believer's baptism and grow in Christ and then begin to invite other people and say, we want you to know this Jesus too. He still does that. He can do that in your neighborhood. He can do that where you work and where you go to school. So as in, we're in this hostile environment and it seems like we're losing the battle sometimes and it seems like uh, things that were, were common sense 10, 15 years ago are, are totally distorted and construed. God is still on his throne, amen? He's still the light of the world. He's still the message of the hope of the gospel and may we be ever faithful to declare that to those around us. Thankfully, through the years, we've had a lot of unbelievers in our home. Many times they were friends of our kids that uh, were either neighborhood friends or uh, uh, different sports teams that they played on. Sometimes it was because of silly things like selling pancakes, and so we would have people come to pick up pancakes, but then they would stay for a while and talk to Kim and Jessica and others. And on no, numerous occasions, and I'll understand my spirit, I'm going to explain this in a minute, on numerous occasions we had kids and adults alike, they would say as they were in our home, sometimes even for a brief time, they'd say, we feel something different here. We feel, a, and sometimes they would even use the terms, we feel a, a good energy here. Really? <laughs> Why is that? It's not because we're, we were such a model family. We have tension and conflicts and stress and difficulties just like every family does. The huge difference was that I believe that they sensed as God was, was leading and convicting their hearts that they sensed was this is a home and many times they didn't even know how to say it in the beginning. This is a home who knows Jesus as the light of the world. 
This is a home who believes in Jesus Christ and has purpose in life. So there was a stark contrast as they would come from their homes that were, unfortunately, many of them were broken because they, they did not follow Christ. And many of their homes had, had, had been ravaged by the effects of sin. And yet they come into our homes, sometimes even for a brief time, and can say, I feel peace here. I feel like there's, there's some type of good energy here. And on more than, on many occasions, we're able to say, we know exactly what that is, and actually it is who it is. It is Jesus Christ that makes all the difference in the world. It's not because, you know, we've just got to figure it out. It's not because, you know, Kim and I are just such great, you know, such great husband and wife, and we're just such model parents. No, it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ that we can experience the peace that we have in our home through Jesus Thankfully, some of those who initially were unbelievers and came into our home, now we know them as brothers and sisters in Christ because they have come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Now as other people watch them and come into their home, they can also sense there's something different here. There's a contrast. There's darkness, and then there's light as we follow Jesus Christ. So we see Jesus linking himself with the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Secondly, we see Jesus linking himself with the pillar of fire that led the Israelites in the wilderness, Exodus 13 and verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Remember, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, same thing. They're, they're in this season so their, their minds are already thinking back about, you know, Israel's wandering through the wilderness. And then Jesus comes out and makes a statement that we read together in John chapter 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Later in this passage, some of these unbelieving Jews will even bring up, as we've already seen, they'll bring up Abraham, but they'll also bring up Moses and say, we're the disciples of Moses. This happens in John chapter 9 with the healing of the blind man that we're going to look at in more detail in the next message, Lord willing. They'll say, you know, we're followers of, of, of Moses. Who are you? So there is, a, there is a very present context of everything that happened with Israel in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, listen, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians rather, verses 10, 1 through 4, makes a connection of what happened with the nation of Israel and Jesus Christ himself. Notice this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was who? Christ. Amen. So Christ is saying, listen, I, I'm, I'm linking myself to Yahweh the Old Testament but also don't forget that just as the nation of Israel was led by the pillar of fire and the cloud, I lead now. I am the light of the world. Thirdly, Jesus is linking himself with the Shekinah glory presence of God and Solomon's temple. 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand and minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 
And so now, as we saw in, in John chapter 7 or verse 2, this is the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. In John 8, as he comes into the temple uh, in the morning, he's standing in the treasury in the court of the women. The candelabras maybe have just been put out as they've been lit through the night and, and light up the whole temple area. Some historians say that it would even light up some of the areas around the temple in Jerusalem. As Jesus stands there, now he says, I am the light of the world. Not just the light of Israel in the Old Testament, not just you know, the light, but he says, I am the light of the world and a remembrance of God's Shekinah glory in Solomon's temple as Jesus himself again stands in the temple and says, I'm the light of the world. We see that it's not only a claim to be God, but it is a culmination of Old Testament prophecies. It's a culmination of Old Testament prophecies. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the prophecy is this. This was 400 years prior the end of the Old Testament, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naft Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Same passage, just a few verses later in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, and we see this oftentimes around Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's the prophecy. Notice the fulfillment, Matthew chapter 4, 13 through 17. And leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of of Zebulun, huh, and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, and then quotations, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, of them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus, the light of the world, the Yahweh, the great I am, began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I love this. I'm so thankful that we're not called to a blind faith in Jesus, but there's evidence of prophecies that were written hundreds of years prior, and Jesus comes as a fulfillment of every single one of them, mathematically impossible to do that other than a divine work of God. To claim to be God, it's a claim, it's a culmination of the Old Testament prophecies, but that's not it. Jesus makes it very clear. It's also a call to be followed. John chapter 8 and verse 12, once again. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever does what? Follows me. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He doesn't just invite people to say, hey, you know, when you're down, when you're discouraged, when you're fearful, look at me. Look at my light then. Or, you know, when it's convenient for you and when it kind of works into to everything that you're, else, you're doing, then, then follow me and you kind of look on my light at that point. Oh, Jesus says, you just need to follow me. You need to be my disciple. It's a call to be followed. How does the light of the world function? Second question. How does the light of the world function? 
We've talked a lot kind of in general terms so far. Okay, Jesus is the light of the world. Amen. So what does that mean? Well, the light of the world penetrates spiritual darkness. First of all, by revealing your separation from God. By revealing your separation from God. In contrast to Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, who came and took flesh upon himself as, as the incarnate Christ and was tempted in all ways like, like we are, yet without sin, as we stand in comparison to Jesus, the contrast could not be clearer that without Christ, I am wicked, I'm sinful, I'm lost. But Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world and sinless, perfect and holy, he shows us our separation from God. Those of us who have responded to Jesus and have accepted him by faith and know that he's our savior, even still, he uses his word, he uses other believers to, to, to continue to point out, hey, there's still some dark areas. Open that closet Allow God's word, James says, as a mirror to show you the dark areas, the weaknesses, the sins of your life so that you may follow me as the light of the world so that you too, Matthew 5 says, can be the light of the world as you reflect me. It's not fun though. It's not fun to be analyzed, to be looked over, to be shown our sin. Several weeks ago, I went um, to my dermatologist once again. At, at one point, it was, it was yearly visits. Well, to be honest with you, for a long time, I didn't go to the dermatologist. And then Kim was like, hon, you, you've got to go. You've got some spots on your skin that are a little worrisome. You need to go. So I started going. And every, almost every time I went, I had the blessings of the dermatologist taking this thing of liquid, nitro, liquid nitrogen. Is that what it is? The really cold stuff, and like, hey, let me, can I freeze this spot off? Oh, sure, doctor. That feels great. Blister. Oh, here's another one. So I started going yearly, and then they found some basal cell carcinoma spots. Said, okay, now you need to come every six months because obviously your skin does not like the sun. Like, okay, I know that. Use a lot of sunscreen. And then a few weeks ago, I, I went again, normal checkup, and the doctors got these, you know, special. Uh, magnifying glasses, looking all over, looking just up my arms. And, I, every, and I'm like, okay, this is uncomfortable. And then he says, okay, that mole on your stomach, um, have you noticed the dark spot that's developed inside the mole? I'm like, no, I, no. I mean, that mole's been there as long as I can remember. He said, okay, well, keep an eye on it. He kind of Walked away from the table there that I was laying on a little bit. And he said, he said, you know, actually, do you mind if we just cut part of that out and send it off? I'm just a little concerned. I'm like, sure, why not? <laughs> I thought I was going to get away maybe once without having something frozen or cut. But go ahead, doctor, have, have fun. So he cut it out and uh, sent it off to be checked. And then I got a message, missed his call, but I got a message from the dermatologist himself. Okay, this is not normal. Normally the nurses call or it's just shown in my records. But he said, hey, this is TJ. David, when you give me a call, I'd like to discuss the results of, you know, your pathology results uh, from your last visit. Okay. So I called, get connection, you know, with the office. And then they said, hey, you, um, 
you have a melanoma spot. Whew. Basal cell carcinoma, being cut, that's no fun. But melanoma? Hmm. My friend Ernie Miller that, we've, that I've mentioned on several occasions in messages died of melanoma. He's a friend of mine in college, young man, he died of melanoma. So as soon as that word was mentioned, I knew this could be serious. But then he, he, he followed up and he says, but thankfully we caught it very early. We don't believe it's spread anywhere else in your body. You're not going to have to get your lymph nodes, you know, test or anything, uh, biopsied of your lymph nodes or no chemotherapy, no radiation. We just need to, to cut out more to make sure we get it all. And Thursday, that happened. So if I'm not doing my hands as much this way, it's because I'm cut this way. And so as that happened, you know, it wasn't enjoyable. I actually don't look forward to going back to him. Now it's every three months or four months, I think, after I go back. I don't look forward to going back and seeing my friend TJ. <laughs> but I'm thankful. As he looks over my body, he looks over my skin, and he can point out, that's cancer that needs to come out. And Jesus Christ uses his word and uses other believers, for those of us who know Christ, to often say, hey, that's sin. That's darkness. You've got to get it out. You, you've got to take care of this. You have to resolve it and come to the light of the world. He penetrates spiritual darkness. Once again, John 8, 12, and Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, verses 21 through 24, so he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So he's saying really, just as he's gonna say later in John 14, 6, I'm the way, folks. I'm the way and the truth and the life. There is no other way. The only way to the Father is through me and I'm gonna go and you're gonna, you, you may wanna come where I can't, but you can't. Then he goes on. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going you cannot come? He said to them, you're from below, I am from above, you're of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus answered in verse 54, John chapter 8 verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Jesus is showing again and again and again, listen, unless you come and believe and put your faith in me as the great I am, as the light of the world, there's gonna continue, the separation will continue. And eventually, it'll be eternal as you live in hell eternally for your sins. But he gives hope, and right after this, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Meaning you can believe. There is the option. You can place your faith in Jesus Christ and respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. As we close here, I want to I look at a story that precedes Jesus' statement in the last few minutes. A story that many of you may be familiar with. It's the story of the adulterous woman and her accusers. It happens in the beginning of John chapter 8. John 8, 1 through 11. And I'm going to move this out of the way a little bit. But So 
as Jesus is there and as he's, he's coming to the temple, then all of a sudden these, this group of men come and they, they have this woman and I can just imagine they kind of throw her down and say, you know, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. You know, will, will you kill her? Will you stone her as Moses has said? And it becomes clear in the passage, and John even makes it clear under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were trying to trap him. They were trying to, to get him to do something that would either incite the Romans or would go against the law of Moses. You may remember the story. Jesus begins to you know, do something in the ground and, and write something. We don't know what it was. We can speculate, but we, we don't know what he was writing in the ground. Was it the Ten Commandments? Was it some of the people's sins of the men who brought the lady. We don't, but he was doing something. And then he looks up at the men and he says, well, in a statement that takes less than five seconds to say, he says, those of you without sin cast the first stone. Less than five seconds. But yet it totally disarmed the whole trap that they had worked so hard to, to create. And it penetrated the darkness of those men's hearts and even showed, you know, first of all, there's some things to note that here, they brought the woman caught in adultery. Okay, we're, we're fairly intelligent here. If the woman was caught in adultery, there's somebody else involved. The man was involved. Where is he? How did, how did he get away? So both of them should have been there. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, both teach that the man and the woman caught in adultery were punishable, not just the woman. So in five seconds, Jesus says, okay, those who cast, or without sin, cast the first stone. Write some more. And then the passage says that from the oldest to the youngest, they begin to just kind of slip away. Jesus, who knows the heart of the adulterous woman, then looks up and says, where are they? Where are they? Where are the ones who we're going to condemn you? Is there, is there anyone else? So first of all, we see that Jesus, again, in this group, penetrates the spiritual darkness. He doesn't celebrate what the adulterous woman, the activity that she was involved in, but he knows her heart and he says in John chapter 8, and I, w- I want you to look at that. John 8, verse 11. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is where we begin to see that Jesus not only penetrates the spiritual darkness, but he offers restoration with God. He doesn't only show us our sin, but thankfully, and for, our, for the grace and mercy that he shows us, then he offers restoration and reconciliation and redemption through his, through his son. And he did this with the adulterous woman. Where are they that we're going to condemn you? Is there no one? No one, she says. And then only he could have said this because he bore the price of her sins on the cross. Only he could say, neither do I condemn you. But notice, go, and from now on, What? Sin no more. This is not a story of just grace and whatever. It is a story of grace, but it isn't a story of abused grace in the sense that as long as I say Christ and as long as I kind of do some things that are somewhat religious, I can live however I want. Jesus says, no, I don't condemn you. I know your heart, but go and sin no more. Then right after that, he goes and he says, I'm the light of the world. 
He offers to her a life much fuller of purpose and meaning than the, than the, 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 the temporary pleasures that she can find in any adulterous relationship ever. The adulterous woman and her accusers, Jesus penetrated their darkness but also showed and offered restoration. One commentator put it this way, Jesus covers her disgrace with his grace. Jesus covers her disgrace with his grace. The beginning of the book of John, and all throughout the book, John brings back the emphasis of Jesus being the light of the world. In fact, 20 times or more, John references Jesus Christ, or Jesus himself references himself as the light In John 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in this story, and the next time we look at this passage, we're going to look at the story of the blind man and how the same truths are are represented in the true story of the healing of the blind man. But in this story with the adulterous woman, Jesus showed himself, yes, I am the light of the world. In contrast to me, you are wicked, you're you're sinful, you're lost in your sins. However, I offer you the light and the hope of restoration and reconciliation through my name. And the adulterous woman experienced that. And I want to close with two more passages, Matthew chapter 5. Because Jesus is the light of the world, what do we find that we are? Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, it says, You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on on a, a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I guarantee you, I love Cloudland Canyon State Park, and you can go about 600 stairs down into the canyon. You can see some beautiful waterfalls and walk along the river there, but I guarantee you there will not be a huge fireworks display of shooting fireworks down into the canyon the next few days. You know why? because not many people would see it. It'd be a complete waste of money. The fireworks are shot up so that people can see, and just in that sense, we are the light of the world, and Jesus says, don't hide it. Show your, shine brightly. Not so that people can praise you, not so that people can praise One Hope Church, but so so people can see Jesus Christ and the glory of God in heaven and bring glory to him. Lastly, Paul then in in Corinthians reminds the Corinthian church that I may remind you was not a perfect church, had a lot of problems, but reminded them of a, a very, very special calling that they had and that we have as believers, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. All this is from God who through Jesus, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and notice, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And don't miss this. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My question 
to you this morning as we finish this part at least is who is God using you to make this appeal of reconciliation and restoration to? Who in your circles of influence, a neighbor, a relative, a student, somebody on a ball team, somebody that enjoys the same hobby that you do, somebody that maybe that you see often at a particular restaurant that you frequent, who has God put in your circle of influence that in his sovereignty and in his, his power, he wants to use you to be that messenger so that he, through your life, can make an appeal to that individual and bring that person to restoration and redemption in Jesus Christ. Who? Think about that. If you come to a blank and think, well, I, I, I don't, I don't, that's a problem. Because this is our calling. Because Jesus is the light of the world. So as we go about, if, we, if we're just doing life and we, we come and worship and we come and serve, and, and yes, we read our Bible and we, we, we have reverence for Christ, but yet if we're not allowing ourselves and our life and our mouth to be a channel of an appeal that God is making to the lost world around us, we are missing our calling. Who is God using, will God use you to make the appeal to others? We know that God draws Men to himself and uses us in the process. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes as we finish this morning?